Father, we say this often and we mean it because it's true that this is the most important time of the week for us. The public reading of your scriptures together as your church. And we also confess and admit to you that we are woefully inadequate to understand it, to interpret it, and to apply it. Our minds are finite and often distracted. We often have blind spots in our lives. We don't even see sin or our need to conform to your likeness in one area or another. And so we ask you with humility but eagerness to make your word clear this morning and to apply it very clearly to our lives. These are your scriptures. We are your people. We are your flock. We are waiting to hear your voice. We are awaiting your instruction, your leadership, your rebuke and your correction. We need you to build us up. We need you to strengthen our faith. We need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Minds to know and comprehend and hearts to feel and experience. So would you bless this time by drawing near to us through your spirit and carrying your word to our hearts and minds? Would you bless this time by protecting us from distractions that may turn our attention and our affections away from you and away from your word? Would you give us a supernatural moment of focus? Father, would you draw near to us through your Son? And help us to behold you. To meet with you. To not resist your presence. But to delight and desire your presence. Would you please do this in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, um, if you would, I'd like to invite you to please take your Bibles and open them with me to Genesis chapter 3. I'd like to take you um, to a passage of Scripture that I've never used to discuss the coming of Christ, but I have very much been excited to use to discuss the coming of Christ, for that is the season that we're in. I do enjoy taking advantage of that. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity. It's not a pleasant chapter in Scripture, and yet interwoven throughout it and intermingled in it is wonderful glimpses of the mercy and goodness of God. We find the, the, a very dark hour. Uh, Kevin DeYoung calls it the second darkest day in human history or in the history of creation, uh, because by that he means the crucifixion being the darkest day. But even here we find glimpses of hope and rays of divine sunlight. 
On another hand, a passage such as Genesis chapter 3 and, and the fall of humanity is incredibly important simply because we need it to understand the beauty of the gospel. The central, singular, most glorious thing that the entire Christian faith revolves around is the message, the truth, that God sent His Son Jesus as a man to die on behalf of sinful men that we might have a way of salvation and reconciliation to God. And to understand the grandeur of that and the beauty of that and the wonder of that and the joy of that, we have to have a fairly good understanding of the plight of humanity. Of the darkness and, and grotesque disease of, of sin. After all, the Gospel seems meaningless to a person who doesn't know their need for the Gospel. And so in understanding our need for the Gospel, the Gospel becomes glorious. And the truth that God would send His Son as a man to die for sinful humanity, to make a way of salvation and reconciliation to Him, that becomes even more sweet as we understand where we would be without God sending His Son. So it's in that vein of thought and with that desire to be expressed that we come to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Hopefully, I will do a good job of bringing out those interwoven moments of the glimpses of God's mercy so that we're not all just depressed when we leave. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 7, we will first highlight the sin, the actual moment of sin. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths loin for themselves. Let's keep reading. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Back into verse 1, we begin again with the sin of Adam and Eve. And uh, the transition into chapter 3, verse 1, is relatively unusual and ordinary. We're introduced into uh, this scene, this setting with a new creature that we haven't encountered yet in the Genesis narrative. As we leave chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, everything is good. The man and the woman are together. And God put them together, and God says in verse 24, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In verse 25, we're left with the commentary. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They existed in unity, and they existed in, in harmony, and in, and in pleasure, and in divine joy. And then all of a sudden, something happens between chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 3, verse 1. It's this angelic rebellion that we don't read about here so that when chapter 3 verse 1 opens, there's now a foreign figure that's crept into the garden. I think this is why God tells Adam in chapter 2 verse 15, He put the man in the the garden to work it and to keep it. Guard it from foreign invasion. By chapter 3, verse 1, there is a foreign enemy that has crept into the garden. A serpent more crafty than any other beast of the field. This is, we know from the rest of Scripture, the incarnation of Satan. Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 both call the devil the ancient serpent. No doubt referencing this passage. This creature can speak and think, and we find him tempting. 
And he brings with him a disease and he approaches the woman named Eve. And he begins to do two or three things to her. Number one, he begins to cast doubt on God's trustworthiness and truthfulness. Did God actually say this? Are you sure? You need to question yourself. You need to re-examine. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan has just broadened God's actual intention from one tree to any tree. And he's causing Eve and would cause all of us to doubt what God has said. We know from Genesis 3 in our own lives that the enemy would delight in nothing more than to diminish God's word in our lives. And when God's word is diminished in our life, then God is diminished. And when God is diminished, sin is diminished. And when sin is diminished, righteousness is diminished. And so this crafty serpent employs what will become a normal tactic of his And he begins to cast doubt upon God's word, God's truthfulness, God's trustworthiness. He implies that perhaps God wasn't telling you the best news. God wasn't giving you the best word. Did he actually say that? The third thing that he's doing, aside from casting doubt and, and implying God's lack of truthfulness, is he's highlighting God's prohibition over God's provisions. Instead of looking to all the good things that God has given you, let's turn our attention to the one and only limitation. He would distract. He would turn your eyes away from all the blessings that surround you. All the food, all the beauty, all the glory, all the goodness, all the pleasure, all the satisfaction, all the, all the things you could ever need to have a perfect existence and a perfect walk with God. Let's take our eyes off of that and put them on the, the command, the restriction, the one restriction. Let's talk about that tree. We learn lessons about fighting our own temptations here in this passage. Don't let the Word of God be diminished in your life. Don't be tempted to think that God's not trustworthy. And don't let your eyes be taken off of the goodness of God and placed on lesser things. Eve responds in verse 2 and she responds quite well at first. She corrects this serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. We have God's instruction back in chapter 2, verse 15, 16, and 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Here, it's a gift. It's a blessing. You may surely eat of them. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. By chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, Eve has apparently 
begun to question God's instruction because she adds to the restrictive nature of it. Not only can we eat of it, but we can't even touch it. This might be the first instance of adding to God's commands. It might be the first traces of legalism. Whatever it is, she's sharing a half-truth. And she restricts God's command more than God does. The serpent capitalizes in verse 4 and 5 and quickly responds, You will not surely die. A blatant rebellion against the Creator. It's no longer subtle. It's no longer disguised. It's out in the open. A crude rejection and disagreement with God. You will not surely die, for God knows. God's intentionally hiding. God's intentionally limiting. God is jealous and doesn't want you to thrive. Doesn't want you to excel. Doesn't want you to experience freedom. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He entices Adam and Eve with knowledge, intellectual gratification, and enlightenment. You'll have your eyes opened. You'll possess the knowledge of God. By verse 6, Eve seems to have been convinced. We find this word, so, which tells us that what is coming is happening because of what's happened. Because of what this wicked serpent has said, Eve does this. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. This enemy of humanity has succeeded. And Eve looks at the practical nature of this tree. Hey, it's, it's good for food. And that seems like a harmless enough reason until you consider the abundance of food that's already surrounding her. God has put her in a garden and says, please eat of every tree and enjoy. She's rejecting that. And you have the extreme form of vanity. The tree is pleasant to the eyes. I like to look upon it. It's beautiful. Again, she is surrounded by an abundance of beauty. And her heart is fixed on this one thing she cannot have. And then the intellectual gratification, she sees that it could make her wise. It could give her knowledge. She could know things like God knows things. She wouldn't have to guess. She wouldn't have to trust Perhaps I'll even become all-knowing. This is a sick revelation of the condition of humanity's heart when we turn our attention away from God. Then we become blinded to all the good things around us. We become blinded to the fact that God is our provider. We don't need to look for food anywhere else. We become, become blinded to the fact that God is more beautiful and the, and the gifts He gives are more beautiful. We don't have to run to, to something else. 
And so Eve takes of this fruit. And she eats. And she gives some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. The Bible tells us that Eve was the one who was deceived. Adam was not deceived. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, it tells us, Adam was not deceived. Which means, I think at the very least, Adam's sin here is willful and direct. He knows. He knows what God has said. And he's listening to his wife instead. He's chosen the instruction of his wife over the instruction of his God. He knows the truth of the tree. But he eats just as his wife eats. Verse 7, what Satan promised in verse 5 has come true. Their eyes are both opened. But they're not open to joy. They're not open to liberties or freedoms. They're not open to peace. Their eyes are open to shame. Their eyes are open to regret. Their eyes are open to guilt. Their eyes are open to humiliation. And they knew that they were both naked and so they crudely put together loincloths out of fig leaves. Notice the immense progression here. From verse 25 in chapter 2 all the way to verse 7 of chapter 3 in that relatively short passage of Scripture, those few verses, everything has entirely forever changed. And why? Because Adam and Eve looked at their Creator, our Creator, and disobeyed. And didn't believe. I don't think the primary sin of humanity is one of pride. I don't think the the first sin is an issue of just pure rebellion. I think those are symptoms of a real issue. I think Adam and Eve's first sin is unbelief. They looked at the goodness of God and they looked at the promise of God and they looked at the instruction of God and said, we don't really quite believe that. We don't believe your threat. We don't believe your instruction. We don't believe your limitation is for our good. We don't believe that these other trees are really enough for us. We don't believe that this garden is all that there is. We don't believe that your, a relationship with you will sustain us or, or satisfy us. And so we're going to believe the lies instead and listen to the lies. And in listening to the same lies that you and I listen to today, they have thrust all of humanity into the darkest plunge we will ever take. And just by the words of verse 7 contrasted with the words of verse 25 in chapter 2, we conclude the effects of sin are catastrophic. Nothing is the same. This is sin. Now this is, this is the consequence of sin. and This is the sin of our parents. The sin of our, our foreparents. That they have ushered all of us into darkness. And so we behave in the exact same way that they behave. Sin gets passed down to each and every 
human being through each and every generation because of this moment right here. And nothing, nothing in all of creation is as God had originally designed it and intended it. Nothing in all of creation is good like the garden once was. Everything is fallen. Everything has changed. Everything has been condemned. Everything has been doomed. Even creation itself must be purged and burned up and recreated one day. Well, as we move to the rest of the chapter, we find the effects of sin and they spread quite quickly. We've already tasted of them in verse 7, but but they just exponentially grow here. The first effect we can take note of in this passage is separation. A separation occurs in two primary ways. First, vertically between humanity and God. Because of the actions of of sinful people, we are separated from God. Verse 8, they hear a familiar sound. It's the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Something that they were uh, accustomed to hearing, something they'd experienced before, only this time it's different. This sound or these, these footsteps that they once delighted in, they now haunt them. What, what once brought joy to their heart now brings terror to their heart. The, the relationship they once delighted in, they're now afraid of. Look what they do in verse 8. They hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God. From me, there is perhaps no other statement in all the Bible that conveys the darkness of sin more than that phrase right there. For the children of God, those of us who are born again, what is our chief desire? It is the presence of our Father. We long to be with God. We long for the warmth of God, the nearness of God, the gentleness of God, the love and care and kindness of God. We long for His presence. And we pray regularly for God to be near to us, for God to be evident among us, for God to draw near. But the effects of sin cause humanity to, instead of delighting in the presence of God, to run from the presence of God. The one place we find life, the one place we find shelter, the one place we find refuge, the one place we find real pleasure, real satisfaction, real fulfillment, we run from. Adam and Eve, all of a sudden, are terrified of the only relationship that can ever save them or sustain them or provide them with satisfaction and fulfillment. As God comes into the garden, they flee. Take note here of God's mercy. Because He could have come in wrath and in fury. He had every right to come in fury. 
into in one swift moment, as we read in the psalm this morning, blast forth from his nostrils fire and consume all of creation. But he doesn't. He comes as he has always come. He comes in gentleness. He comes in patience. And he comes with an offering. Verse 9, he calls out to the man and says to him, where are you? Our God is an all-knowing God. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing is outside of his counsel. He watched this serpent deceive Eve. He watched the events take place. It's not that God does not know where Adam and Eve are hiding. He is graciously giving them an opportunity to come to their Creator and confess. That's the character of God. That's why we read in 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, He is what? Faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If we look in Isaiah chapter 55, I'll just flip over there really quick. Another passage that teaches the same thing. Isaiah 55 verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that God may have compassion on him. And let him return to God for He will abundantly pardon. That is the character the truth of God. If you come to Him and confess and seek Him, He will forgive. He will pardon. He will restore. If you resist, there's only judgment. Adam and Eve didn't come to God in repentance. They come to Him in terror. He offers a moment of confession. And in verse 10, instead Adam comes up and speaks and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Let such words just burden your soul. Let such a confession break you. People who once lived in perfect harmony with God now only relate to Him in fear. Sin is vile. And it never fulfills its vain promises. It rips everything good from us. The devil and his lies seem to be good in the time, but let me guarantee you, He hates you and only delights and desires your suffering. He would plunge all humanity under the wrath of a loving God. Adam and Eve now relate to God in fear. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, the vertical relationship between man and God has certainly been separated. If I don't speed up, we're not going to ever get to any good news. The horizontal relationship has also been separated. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, He knows. He's giving 
Adam and Eve another chance at confession and ownership and responsibility. But Adam plays this blame game. He blames two people in verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me. He now has the audacity to blame his creator. The, the one you put in this garden with me, she messed everything up. It's your fault. Sin so warps the mind and warps the perspective. It warps your understanding of the holy power of God. And then he throws his wife under the wrath of God. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her, it's her, it's you, it's you. Verse 13, perhaps the most crushing question in all of history. What is this that you have done? A question God knows the answer to, but a question that's meant to convey to Adam and Eve, you have no earthly idea of what's just happened. What is this that you have done? You can't give an answer. But I know. Well, the woman also tries to divert responsibility. It's the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Which is more truthful than Adam, but will not absolve her of her guilt. Adam and Eve begin to throw stones at each other. A problem that will reverberate throughout all of creation. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel will also exemplify the broken relationship between people. So the effects of sin are, are first of separation, then of a constant reminder. As we fast forward, look in verse 16, God gives a constant reminder in these uh, curses of the stain of sin. To the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Your, your marital strife will only grow. You won't exist anymore in harmony. You won't exist anymore in unity. You'll exist in heart, heartache and disappointment and failure and sin. And, and woman, what's supposed to be your most joyous time, your most pleasurable time, the birth of another human being into the world, it's going to be marred with the stain and stench of sin. So that in your highest moment of good, you'll remember the effects of sin are far and wide. And to the man, because you listened to your wife and you didn't listen to me, that innate desire I've put in you to provide and to work and to produce, it will no longer be easy. You won't relate to me easily. You won't work easily. You won't produce easily. You will be confined to work the ground and it will no longer yield to, its, yield to you its fruit willingly. In pain, you're going to have to eat of it. And by the way, in the end, it's going to swallow you up. You'll go back to dust. Death will be the hallmark of humanity. We go into the next chapter, the first murder, Cain and Abel. We go into chapter 5, and you find the, uh, an early genealogy, generations of humanity, and the re repeated phrase, thus all the days of so-and-so were such and such years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That chapter is entirely meant 
to be painful for us to read. Generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. Father and son. Father and son. Father and son. Father and son. Every single one returned to the grave. They die. They die. They die. They die. Sin's effects spread quickly. Fast forward to verse 20. For, uh, verse 21. God in His mercy decides to address Adam and Eve's need at the moment and clothe them of their embarrassment. But let us not forget what's required to clothe them skins. And in a garden of perfection and a garden of harmony, all of a sudden Adam and Eve, I would venture to say, are given an image that they will never forget when an animal is slaughtered and they see blood strewn around and skins pulled off of it. It's meant to be disgusting. It's meant to be horrific. Everything has changed. Verse 22, 23, and 24. God in His mercy prevents Adam and Eve from taking of the tree of life and eating and living forever in their sinful eternal state. He created the human soul to be eternal. He doesn't want them to exist eternally in sin. So the consequence they have to face, be driven out of paradise. All the beauty, all the food, all the joy that they traded will be lost forever. The effects of sin are far and wide. Genesis chapter 3 tells us of this evil transgression that separates us from God, separates us from one another, is a constant reminder upon even the good things in our lives and reminds us constantly of our need. We all are facing death. We have a great great need. And in the midst of all of this darkness and all of this doom and all of this despair is this glorious promise of hope in chapter 3, verse 15. We can call it the first Gospel. The first promise of Christ. The first solution, the only solution to both our need and our salvation. God curses this serpent physically. You're going to slither around on your belly. And then spiritually, He speaks to Satan and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put strife, hostility, opposition between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I think there we find the first allusion to the virgin birth. You know, in every other place we read in scriptures, as we talk about the coming of Christ, we read of the offspring of Abraham or the offspring of David or the offspring of some man. That's the general terminology. But here in Genesis 3.15, it's the offspring of the woman. It's the sin of Adam that ushers in death. It's the sin of Adam as the federal figurative head of humanity that, that brings death to all people. That's Romans 5. But it's the offspring of the woman. The one that will come from the woman is the one who will crush your head, bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. 
we read of His victory, He will once and for all strike you and permanently deal you your fatal blow. But not without His own suffering, you will bruise His heel. While I don't think Adam and Eve really understood verse 15 in all its fullness, we know that the only way this wicked serpent is conquered is through the cross of Christ. Our suffering Savior who did come of a woman. And God promises even at the very beginning in His infinite mercy, even in the throes and intense moments of sin and its effects spreading, He promises that one day, serpent, you will be dealt with and your work will be undone. And everything will be made right again. In the, in the darkness of human, humanity's first sin, as the sun shines but the dark clouds come over the hearts of Adam and Eve, there is this beautiful glimmer of light that says, I will one day take care of it all. God already has a plan in place. Even as our parents fall and plunge us all into sin, God has a plan in place. There is one coming of a woman and He will deal you your final blow. He will be victorious. His victory is promised. Your defeat is declared. And His suffering will be temporary, but His victory will be permanent. As we fast forward to consider Matthew chapter 1 and 2, or Luke chapter 1 and 2, and we read of the birth of our Lord and Savior who came in a manger and took on flesh, we see Genesis 3.15 beginning to be completed. We see Christ coming into humanity to bruise the head of the serpent. We see Christ being born to undo what happened in Genesis 3 to make all things right, to make all things new, to make all things good again. That's the consummation of the kingdom. One day Christ will come back and everything will be made new. As we consider the birth of our Lord this year, let's remember that He, come, he came To declare and accomplish victory. To conquer the effects of sin. To make a way of salvation and reconciliation to God. To win on our behalf. To overthrow and undo what has been done. In the darkness of this passage, we find the hope of salvation. And the rest of the Scriptures will be spent fleshing out verse 15 until the day that Christ comes again and takes us all home and everything is finally made right. The good news is that today we can begin experiencing the redemptive work of Christ already. 
that vertical relationship that's been separated with God because of sin can begin to be reestablished today. That horizontal effects that, that puts strife between you and I can through Christ be resolved, begin to be resolved today. If only you come and submit yourself to Christ as we are supposed to do. That is where we find new life taking root and the old effects of this dark sin being ushered away.